Welcome to How Things Connect podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Wang, and I'm so glad you're here. We'll be sharing modalities for personal transformation and talking to extraordinary healers, thinkers, and leaders who break through boundaries to expand consciousness as part of the regenerative movement. It's all about elevating and inspiring each other to be our most empowered selves as part of our collective evolution. Make sure to subscribe to How Things Connect podcast and join our community on Patreon. Okay, let's get started. Hello, Brando. So good to see you here. So excited. (laughs) So excited to have you as our guest on Thank you. I'm so excited to be part of your uh, this project. It's uh, (laughs) it's uh, you know. Interconnectedness is a very important um, concept for all of us to integrate in our lives. So, all good. Thank you, and I'm, ex- I'm just so excited to have you as a guest um, and that you have so much amazing experience to share. And just as an introduction, Brando Crespi is a global change maker and climate activist with a deep background in sustainability, branding, and innovation. He is the co-founder and chief strategist of ProNatura International. And Brando, you have over the last 20 years designed, implemented, and funded many agroecological projects in the Americas, Africa, and Asia, and especially on the use of biochar to fight against climate change, strengthen food security, and also combat poverty. And um, before all of that, you've also had such uh, an incredible career in in multiple areas, starting off as a journalist in Italy, in Rome, which is where you're from. Is that right? Yeah, I'm very proud to say I had the most rapid career in the history of Italian journalism, (laughs) all of it downhill, uh, because I started... uh, after well, I, I started my journalism career after a few years at Georgetown, so I knew quite a lot about the U.S. and uh, the elections which were upcoming, and uh, ended up in the city room where I felt I was at least getting out of this, you know our uh, our building and getting out and taking a bite of reality. And that was considered very uncool to go from politics to covering uh, murders and things of that nature. But uh, yes, I, I, uh, I think anthropology and journalism gave me um, some of the tools that I believe are useful to understand our world and, uh, and to understand how we shape reality. Speaking of interconnectedness, which you, you talked about earlier, I mean, it's really interesting because you went from journalism to actually doing field work in Amazonian anthropology, um, yeah. including exploring shamanism and ethnobotany. Yeah. And what was it? Uh, was it what was it inside you that kind of sparked that interest to go in that direction, and then mm-hmm. later on into into luxury fashion and Branding. The, the, um, I guess the deepest answer to that question is the fact that when I was about 13, I drowned <clears throat> and, um, and had what I later on discovered were a fairly classical, a fairly classical set of experiences. My life flashed back in front of me. I, ju- I judged it. 
and I connected to a reality which was so transcendent. Uh, the words um, are not very good to describe that. And I was left uh, when I came back because I was kind of very miraculously uh, fished out at the last minute. Um, I was left with a nostalgia for the divine. And um, uh, I had experienced what maybe a drop of water could experience if they joined the ocean and merged into that. And journalism was a, um, a deep dive into kind of a dark side of reality. And I knew that the better journalist I was becoming, the less I liked myself. So my uh, departure from journalism, which was also uh, a kind of family tradition, my grandfather was a journalist, my parents were journalists. Um, they, um, that was a way to reconnect to other dimensions. And shamanism is an ancient way of connecting to, you know, to piercing the veil which separates our dimension with other dimensions, other intelligences. And, um, and I was quite fascinated by that. And uh, I'm fascinated by the knowledge that shamans have plants and um, and over the years we worked even at Pronatura quite a lot with shamans both in the Amazon and in Gabon um, and um, they keep on uh, surprising and amazing me. Extraordinary and how did then well I'm just I'm just still kind of contemplating your experience, your near-death experience, which I'm sure just was, has shaped you in, in such deep ways. Um, and go, but then you also then took a turn because you left Europe and then you went to LA. Well, excuse me, you were, you were, at, Georgetown, you were at Georgetown, but then you went to LA and actually um, uh, sort of took a commercial turn and pretty much launched Rodeo Drive. I mean, you opened the first Fendi, Versace and Pertesi stores, and also Hard Rock Cafe. And how, how did that kind of happen between your journalism and anthropology? Um, yeah, there's nothing uh, linear <laughs> about my life or anybody's <laughs> life for that matter. But, um, um, well, what happened is that in the mid seventies, things were going very bad in, in, in Italy. We were going through a lot of domestic terrorism um, and uh, five family friends had been kidnapped. And I was born in a very visible family. So we all collectively decided that it was time to leave. And um, so my parents moved to uh, New York and uh, I decided to go to uh, LA <clears throat> with my wife who um, we discovered on the boat uh, I took a cargo boat to go to LA which was a fun trip uh, stopping in Colombia but nevertheless and going back into the Amazon for a quick trip um, but um, 
I arrived in LA and realized very quickly that there was nothing romantic about La Boheme uh, in LA. Uh, being a poor uh, artist, journalist, and anthropologist was not going to put uh, much joy into my life. And, um, and um, so I kind of somewhat stumbled into PR, marketing, and communications, because in a way it was an easy path for me. It was kind of applied anthropology, if you want. And I knew journalism pretty well at this point, and I knew how to package things for journalists. Um, and, um, and I got a job, and um, which was, you know, first time in many years, I was back uh, getting paid every month. And, uh, and the job was to launch Rodeo Drive. So uh, that's how Amazing. it all started. And then, you know, my parents were very uh, involved in the world of luxury. My mother was an editor of American Vogue. And my father had a PR agency. He put uh, Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn on the Vespa. He uh, launched the Valentino Fanny, all these uh, brands uh, internationally. So I knew a lot of these people since I was a little kid. And uh, when they found out I was in LA and was in a more commercial mode, they came flocking and said, help, you know, we don't know California. We sometimes don't even speak English. And uh, will you help us? And eventually I opened an office in New York and uh, managed to handle the marketing communications for companies like uh, Ferragamo, Zegna, many, 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 many more. At the same time, they paid for uh, a lot of things that they would have been very surprised uh, to discover that uh, I was doing. I kept those two sides of my life separate. So I opened the first flotation tank centers um, in LA, San Francisco. Um, opened, uh, started with uh, an extraordinary friend called Stephen Schwartz, something called the Mobius Group, which was an applied parapsychology lab where we studied remote viewing. And uh, that was kind of uh, Mobius and SRI were the, the centers where we were applying what we think is a human birthright. And um, so um, in the mid eighties, however, I discovered that I was getting a little complacent and um, you know, all this money and I was very well paid, which I obviously enjoyed. And I was being covered with clothes and sheets and things. And uh, I'll say no to that. <laughs> back and forth to Europe. <laughs> and I was living between New York and LA and, uh, but, I decided that I needed to really give myself a, a, a kick in the butt and focus on, on um, things which spoke to a deeper part of me. So I, um, I co-founded a couple of NGOs and then during my frequent trips to Brazil met an extraordinary man, a unique uh, explorer, mountain climber, <clears throat> MD, uh, Olympic athlete called Maxel Andrade, and together we started Pronatura. And that's 35 years ago, and there's a long journey from there. 
What is fascinating about Pro Natura is you talked a lot earlier about applying your experience. It's almost like apply, applied sciences. And Pro Natura, it seems that the model that you've adopted is um, applied sustainable economy. Yes, mm-hmm. Yeah. And could you explain that? Yeah, sure. Because in the, you know, our first project was overly ambitious. We decided to uh, try to stop the deforestation of an area called Juluena in the on the border between the Amazon and Mato Grosso, an area which is actually larger than the UK, twelve and a half million hectares. And at the time, the flavor of the, well, the, the, the whole environmental movement was really about conservation. And uh, WWF had these models of oases where you protected and, uh, but that didn't make any sense on 12 and a half million hectares, you know. Uh, you couldn't put fences, you couldn't put guards mm-hmm. shooting at people who were cutting trees. It was absurd, right? Um, so we needed to find a different approach. And the different approach was to try and help the people who were part of the problem to become part of the solution. And, um, and then we also um, worked quite a lot in trying to bring business to understand the value of environmental responsibility. So for instance, in Juguena, we created Peugeot, the French car company, uh, funded the largest carbon sink in the world at the time. And uh, we planted uh, over 2 million trees. And reforestation in the Amazon is not a simple thing to do. But um, eventually that and many other things that we did, um, giving skills and teaching people sustainable economic practices, um, working with um, uh, native native communities, uh, still there were at the time a few tribes which had never been contacted so we didn't contact them we tried to protect their um, the integrity of their territory Um, but nevertheless the point was to um, to find um, ways where um, which allowed people to leave the slash and burn agricultural practices and move into something more cooperative and more sustainable. And this work eventually, at the time there was no such word as sustainability. So this work eventually became known as sustainability. Juruena is one of the landmarks, according to the World Bank of sustainable project, probably the most sustainable project in South America. we got the Mitchell Prize, which is the Nobel Prize of considered the Nobel Prize mm-hmm. of Sustainability. Um, and uh, after '92, uh, after the Rio conference, decided that what we had developed, this different approach, was actually exportable. So I moved to Paris, and um, we opened an office in Paris to work with. Um, um, Africa, especially Francophone Africa at the beginning, mm-hmm. and then eventually Asia. So 
we eventually created project in 62 countries. Amazing. And not only did you do to, did you create all those reforestation projects, um, you also actually held many expeditions yeah. um, to collect something like half a million samples of, of life forms. Yeah, um, well, more than those. And um, yeah, we, we organized 13 of the large, actually the largest expeditions in the world to, um, to study biodiversity. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and it was a lot of fun because we created a lot of uh, flying devices to explore the Amazon, the uh, canopy of the rainforest yeah. in Madagascar. Yeah, I saw those photos, extraordinary. In, um, in Guyana, in Gabon, and, uh, and I got um, a perfume company called Givaudan to fund some of them. And we won some nice prizes there. Um, but essentially, uh, at some point, I was putting noses from the perfume industry under a 55 meter blimp in the cabin underneath this <laughs> blimp, flying at six o'clock in the morning over the rainforest of indeed uh, South America and Africa. And um, with a GPS uh, machine where they could just press a button whenever they there was a scent that they thought was interesting. And then we go back and in the beginning, we had this large 5,000 square foot platform made of Kevlar netting and inflatable tubes, which we could deposit on top of a rainforest mm. and do research or collect, in this case, samples of um, scents. And um, uh, anyway, so, um, so there was um, um, a lot of interesting uh, expeditions, including the biggest one. We actually raised enough money to bring 183 scientists to Papua New Guinea for a year and a half and uh, collect uh, one and a half million samples of life force, of life forms from um, 15 hundred meters below the surface so we have an we had an oceanographic uh, wow. uh, boat and uh, two absolute two nearly four thousand meters above the ground every hundred meters we'd stop and collect samples and uh, they're still being uh, analyzed all the taxonomy they're doing the genetics now we do Amazing. genetics of life samples and found hundreds of new life forms um, but the, what, what is interesting about that is, first of all, why aren't lots of people doing that? Mm -hmm. What happened? We stopped mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. We'd like to start again, but, you know, nobody else is doing this work. And it's incredibly important because we are in the midst of a great sixth extinction of life forms on this planet. And... Paradoxically, the areas which are the richest in biodiversity are the one which are also the most threatened. So um, anyway, it's it's uh, it's infuriating at some level that um, um, 
you know, that this is not being done on large scale by... And, and why not? Why not, actually? It's a good question. I, I honestly, I don't know. I mean, you know, the point is that there are some, like, for instance, um, the U.S. Academy of Science and Smithsonian will do a study on one particular life form and look at different evolutions or different versions of that in different content on different continents. Uh, but the large scale collecting um, of life forms is we were the last to do it as far as I know. And um, we stopped about seven or eight years ago. And, um, and um, you know, the situation hasn't improved since then. There's an extraordinary... No, absolutely you know, they, they, There was a lot of controversy around some of this for a while, not so much our work, but around the whole issue of biopiracy. So a mm -hmm. lot of countries very... Um, suspicious, especially um, below the equator, of scientists coming to collect life forms, because some of them worked for pharma and, and chemical right. industries, and never, you know, and there's such a thing called biopiracy. And we we tried to address that by creating a legal system uh, called Biodivalor, which we offered to countries to adapt. And Gabon was the only country that actually took our, our system and, um, and legislated uh, uh, its own version of it. Mm -hmm. um, and this allowed for uh, ethical bioprospecting. Mm -hmm. uh, so we were in uh, Gabon with Glaxo, who was looking for anti-cancer drugs. They had signed into this uh, ethical bioprospecting. And well, the sad thing is that when Glaxo opened their labs, uh, their new labs uh, outside of London, they invited us to introduce this project to all of the pharma companies. There were 18 companies present in London at the time or present at the opening of this lab. And Glaxo said, look, we need to, um, we need to do this differently and this is the way we've done it in Gabon and uh, and you should do it too. So I gave out my card to uh, 18 uh, pharmaceutical companies and they all said yes 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 we'll all call you. None of them did. I wrote to them and none of them answered. Yeah. So part of this is because the US never signed a biodiversity convention at the Rio conference. So mm -hmm. it's much more profitable for companies, for pharma companies, but also chemical companies just to go and take and maybe they will put in a school or hospital, but uh, most of the time that doesn't work. Right. You go back and you see you see that most corporate social responsibility projects are a disaster. You go back a year later and the beautiful picture published in the uh, annual report is now, you know, broken down because you, you haven't included the local community. It's not the right. project, you know. Which is something I, I noticed that, you know, this was 35 years ago and with Promenatura International, you had already, that was part of your ethos, was to actually 
uh, consult with local communities and actually understand what the shared values were. And, and upon that foundation, be able to base, um, you know, your, to structure the, the organization, to structure your business um, around that, around those um, shared values. And it's so important. I mean, it's such a, a foundational really to any sustainability work and regenerative work, taking that a step further. Um, it, it's interesting too, I wonder, Brando, whether you feel it's, you know, um, I know you mentioned that the US never signed the Rio, um, you know, biodiversity treaty, yeah. but is it, well, that, and also just a general sense of, of, of disassociation and separation from really the 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 fact that you know we are actually part of nature i mean there's almost a disconnect and in some countries at least the way i've observed it's more so than for other cultures and countries and certainly it seems for the us that's that's a big issue and and that is you know this fundamental sort of uh belief that we're above nature and and that's something that i think in the long run has certainly um, some significant negative consequences for all of us. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, I, I'm thinking that probably has to do with some of, you know, why, yeah. <laughs> why obviously- Well, it's an extractive culture. Right. Know? And, uh, you know, my criticism living in New York was that the mantra of New York is what can you do for me? And, mm -hmm. uh, and that's the mantra of this extractive, mentality it's not what can we, can we do together and right. so Pronatoria, we're very much about what can we do together and one of the things that we would do is walk into communities not with a four-wheel drive and a satellite you know phone and uh, and listen and learn and um and that is something which was sorely lacking in the environmental and developmental world. Uh, there were a lot of kids with degrees from Harvard or Yale, uh, and a lot of Uberists, Western male white Uberists about we know better and we're here. And that's, so there was a lot of paternalism and even if well-meaning and, uh, um, and a lot of pushback. Um, mostly very subtle, but very effective. So what we would look for were the natural leaders, mm -hmm. because there was obviously a structure, like we, we worked many, many years in Nigeria, and uh, we were dealing with kings, you know, lots of kings, and uh, tribal kings. But there were also other, there was the national government, and then there is the people who are important on the ground, who really, and sometimes it's the shaman, sometimes it's a priest, sometimes it's a whorehouse owner. Mm -hmm. And uh, <laughs> if you don't get them involved, nothing really happens. And then what we would do, we would identify, very often there were women, and that was at the time, you know, even more outrageous than it is today. Today, we take for granted. Oh, God forbid. Actually, yeah. all developmental work starts with women. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the most effective way to change 
a, um, uh, a community's economic future. And we would ask them, let's define together where you want to be in 50 years. And that was a real stretch because a lot of these communities are surviving. Yeah. But it was very important to bring that consciousness of possibility. And then we would find funding. Eventually, we deployed one and a half billion dollars over the years and, you know, impacted about six and a half million people. Um, and, um, but, you know, it's a drop in the bucket. Uh, mm. But still, and now, you know, I was coming here today listening to public radio and the amount of hunger that is in America. And I, I've been realizing that a lot of what we developed it would be, is very applicable. Very relevant. Here, and I'm in New Mexico today, surrounded by, um, you know, um, Indian, they like to be called that way, Indian communities, and they are the in dire straits. The Pueblo Indians in New Mexico. The Pueblo Indians, but also the Navajos, the Apaches, the, mm. you know, there are plenty of, uh, of tribes here. Mm -hmm. And um, part of the problem is they don't really work very well together. And uh, so there's still a lot of tribal um, antagonism, which is historical. And, uh, but there are, you know, that is, um, there are plenty of examples of collaboration. So that's, you know, that's on the other side. And I'm, I'm really curious actually, because I know you're actively involved obviously still and, and you're in particularly in Green Charcoal right now, which is a specific project um, in Senegal, um, in Africa, which can of course extend to other countries but right now that's what you're, that's where you're at. And how do you, I mean, have you seen a renewed enthusiasm, um, impetus, energy behind these, um, behind this project, behind these types of projects in your field? Or have you seen more um, disillusionment, should I say? Ah, well, um, you know, I'm reminded of Gramsci's line, which was one of my mantras, which is about the pessimism of the intellect and the optimism of the will. Um, it, it seems like, you know, uh, well, I found myself a few years ago at the climate, uh, at a big climate um, demonstration uh, in New York. And um, I found myself crying because I didn't feel alone anymore. There were hundreds of thousands of people there. Um, so on one hand, I see that we have an extraordinary ability to deny, postpone whatever is not immediately satisfying to our ego and to our needs. But then you have people who take, uh, you know, especially the kids who realize the urgency of what's going on. And thank you, Greta, for being such a powerful mm -hmm. voice. Um, Greta Thunberg. Yeah. Um, it, it, it seems quite extraordinary that um, the amount of denial and dismissal which is going on, and some of it is political in this country, 
which is incredible if you think of it, because everywhere else in the world, it's not a political issue. Mm -hmm. Everybody realizes it's an existential issue. Mm -hmm. But in, in the States, it has become that. Um, but that notwithstanding, uh, it's an uncomfortable reality. We, we kind of know it's there. In Europe, we are very engaged, um, mm -hmm. much, much more than in the US. Um, for some reason, even the press here does not deal with that. And maybe because in New York, New York has not been hit by as much, uh, I don't know, that was a theory a few years ago that New York, where most of the press is based, was kind of isolated from the worst results of, of our climate catastrophe, although I don't think that's true anymore. And it's happening before our eyes, the cost of coastal real estate in Florida has gone down 9%, um, just because people know that um, the sea level is uh, rising. And, you know. Right. I mean, you were talking about the media. I mean, again, you have to look at who is backing the media, where's the money coming from? I mean, there's just, and we won't go into that because um, that's a whole other topic, but it's, um, and I'm only asking you that question because um, it seems to me that uh, you know, as as unfortunate as as it is, in particularly in the United States, but in many parts of the world as well, where there's increasing polarization, and I would say that's that's not just a U.S. centric phenomenon, um, but that you know, it, it, at least personally, I find that when we start to look at and focus on issues that are greater than us, that are greater than um, sort of our immediate. Um, sort of squabbles, there is, you, you know, under normal circumstances, there would be a uniting, that would be a uniting call. And I still feel and hope that that is the situation because um, it's, it's, uh, it's very easy, especially now, and I'm saying this particularly because we are existing at this minute in, in an, a very tenuous environment um, that's, uh, you know, that feels like something's going to ignite any second and not necessarily in a constructive way. However, um, there, I would say also that, you know, there is the forces that are exaggerating and um, fomenting a lot of this polarization. Part of the agenda is to extinguish that hope, right? Is to extinguish and um, kind of take away the joy, the 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 hope, the the um, the focus on anything that's positive, and the fact is, um, like you mentioned, and I would love for you to go into biochar green charcoal a little bit more, is that we have a lot of the solutions we are needing to create not just sustainability, but you know, economic, um, you know, economic growth. We have. Um, solutions to issues of disease. We have many um, of those kinds of solutions that uh, are all around us. It's that our focus has been very distracted from looking at, um, at these particular solutions that may not be uh, necessarily advantageous for particular, particular factions to kind of, you know, look at, but in fact is really important. And hence, you know, we have a show like this, that's why, you know, it's so important, the work that you're doing 
um, Brando. And, uh, you know, and speaking of inexpensive, effective, multi-pronged solutions, I would love to take that into green charcoal and biochar. So could you explain to us how that works and why it's so amazing? Yeah, well, you know, for, I remember years ago talking to people in the States about climate issues and, uh, and it being a very abstract conversation. And then finding myself in, I don't know, Senegal or Ethiopia. Well, Ethiopia is a good example. Um, uh, I, I was asked to um, try and help the coffee uh, industry in Ethiopia because there was a study by Q, um, an English research and organization that said by 2050, Ethiopia would lose 98% of its coffee production because of climate change. Um, so what I'm getting at is that farmers know and have known that climate change is real. Um, it's, um, it's more in the boardrooms and in some of the political centers that the denial takes place. And it's, you know, it, it, I think we are at the end of that cycle. Um, the, um, so we were working with farmers because ultimately 80% of the developing world's um, uh, economy is related to food and agriculture. And um, bringing agroforestry, permaculture, and other techniques to them. And, um, and finding that um, uh, it was getting harder and harder for them um, because of lack of water and because of shorter uh, growing seasons, a number of, of, of reasons why it was becoming harder for them to survive. And this was generating conflict and migration. And we're still at the beginning of that phase. So, um, but farmers um, know around the planet what's going on. And we realized that we needed to bring um, innovation and help to them. And, um, and eventually what we did is some kind of technology transfer from the Amazon, uh, from old technology, old Amazonian technologies <laughs> to Africa and Asia and so on through the whole uh, process of biochar. But um, what, what, what really happened is that we stumbled on what is an extraordinary solution. It's being called the third green revolution, um, really by chance. Because in uh, 1998, we already knew that uh, the use of charcoal was destroying forests all over the world. And there are close to 3 billion people who use charcoal every day with terrible impacts on not only on the forest mm -hmm. and biodiversity, but also on health, um, because there are close to 4 million women and children who die every year from breathing the fumes from charcoal. And the more 
people move into cities and there is, and the more population explodes, the greater the demand for charcoal is. Um, charcoal and firewood, but in cities specifically, it's not firewood, uh, it's charcoal. So we decided to um, develop a technology which would allow us to take agricultural waste or invasive species like elephant grass or tifa in Africa and uh, turn that into a green charcoal. And we won uh, Best Technology for Developing World uh, Prize by the Altran Foundation in 2002. And at that point, we got a call from a gentleman called Johannes Lehman, who's a professor at, um, at Cornell, who said, congratulations, you know, do you realize you have the best biochar technology in the world? And we said, well, thank you. That's very nice of you. But what's biochar? And any, you know, you could hear the surprise in the silence on the other side of the line. He said, but you, you guys are originally Brazilians, you know, if you don't know what biochar is. And we said, well, sorry, we don't. He said, this is Terra Preta, Terra Preta dos Indios. And, you know, I scratched my head and remembered that indeed in the Amazon, and already at that time, there were a few people talking about it. There was some issues around how could cities of 50,000 people exist on a land which had just a few inches of topsoil. So you couldn't grow food in most of the Amazon. Um, you, but yet um, they had figured out a way which allowed them to grow food and allowed them to live in cities which were larger than London in the 14th century, uh, which all disappeared. When we arrived, uh, they, you know, there was a man called Francisco de Orellana who was the first one to, he was a, uh, Pizarro's lieutenant, and he came down the Rio Negro and the Amazon River, and he described these flourishing garden cities. Um, well, 40 years later, when they went back, the Spanish went back, there was nothing there. Uh, our germs had killed uh, millions of people. Um, there were probably 20 million people living in the Amazon at the time. And um, what we now know is that they had observed that by adding ground charcoal to the ground that an extraordinary effect took place. I didn't understand why, but it was obvious that that soil became very fertile. And uh, now we have 20,000 studies on this and the Chinese are all over this. The Chinese have understood and implemented the use of biochar on a national scale. But at the time, what we knew is that by adding charcoal, something happened, soil was created. In some cases, you have seven, eight, 12 feet of black fertile soil, which was uh, geoengineered by native uh, uh, Amerindian tribes. Um, 
and that this land, this soil is nine times, 900% more fertile than the traditional Amazonian soil. And uh, what we were compressing into charcoal, into a green charcoal, was actually the same thing that Amazonian Indians were putting into the soil. And um, moving fast forward, we have projects all around the Sahara Desert in 13 countries where we've demonstrated that with camel dung, biochar, and a lot of elbow grease and some social technologies to get people working together and, uh, and, uh, and uh, collaborating, uh, that we could turn sterile Sahara desert sand into 11 harvests a year. That's extraordinary. Yeah. So this is like extreme agriculture, but mm -hmm. While most of the planet, thank God, is not in that situation, we have 60 years of topsoil left on this planet. Every year, we just flush down the oceans an incredible amount of fertile soil. And biochar is a way of turning that, of reactivating the biology uh, of that soil. Regenerating the soil, yeah. Regenerating mm -hmm. the soil so that you can increase the yields and the speed at which plants grow between 50 and two, 300% in some cases. And the worse the soil is, the more extraordinary the impact of, of the use of biochar is. See, Sahara, you can't get any worse right. than that. Sand, <laughs> exactly. You know, sterile sand. Um, so, um, so today we are very involved um, in bringing biochar to the surface as one of the most powerful regenerative solutions we have. We also know we can turn biochar into graphite and create superconducting batteries and superconductors and batteries and so on, but on a much more down to earth basis, pun intended, uh, we can double uh, at least food production and cut water. In the, in the Sahara, we cut water between 80 and 85%. So, mm. you know, that's another quality of biochar mm. it, it has a, a structure which is like nanotubes where water goes in and then you have fauna and flora, bacteria, enzymes and so on growing there. And then that nurtures this extraordinary network of called mycorrhiza. It's a mushroom. It's kind of called the underground internet. Right, exactly. Network, which allows plants to nurture and connect. Mycelium, yeah. yeah. So amazing and powerful. That's the end of part one. Don't miss part two of my interview with Brando Crespi in the next episode, where he continues his inspiring talk about green technology and creating zero-waste circular economies that are both highly profitable and also positively impactful. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and found it stimulating and supportive for your journey. You are not alone, and we are all in this together to imagine and create a more conscious and elevated world. 
Wherever you are, we are without a doubt in an accelerated time of ascension. Be a part of this global movement now. Subscribe to this podcast and follow me at StephanieY5D on Instagram or how things connect on Facebook and send me any feedback and questions which are always welcome. Just DM me on Instagram or email me on my website howthingsconnect.com. I also invite you to join our private How Things Connect community on Patreon for bonuses, exclusive content, group discussions with healers and experts, and the opportunity to connect more directly. Stay tuned and stay connected.